morning. All right. Well, why don't we pray and then we'll jump right into things. Father, thank you for a beautiful day. We're grateful for your many blessings and we're grateful for the blessing of this confession. We pray that as we uh, endeavor to understand what's been laid before us here, that we'll reflect on its scriptural warrant and also our own conduct. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so uh, we're in uh, the 20th chapter, and we're looking at the third article. We looked at it a little bit last week. I'd like to return to it, and then I think we'll probably get through the fourth article today. So it's in the back of your hymnal. If you don't have it all memorized, you do have it all memorized, don't you? Of course. <laughs> so it's there. And like I said, we're in chapter 20. So let me, let me read uh, the third article. I think you'll remember uh, it from last week. They who upon any pre- pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lust do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So um, when you uh, work with words like I do every day, and you work really hard at trying to uh, understand what is written, one of the things you notice about your own tendency is to read things in that aren't there uh, and then miss things that are. This is a very common practice. This, just this past week, I sent a tweet out that created a flurry of responses, and the people who were responding most vociferously were inserting a word that was not in the, te- the text of the, the tweet. In other words, they were assuming I was talking about something, and I wasn't. So they were just um, outraged that I would call into question the legitimacy of a particular institution uh, when I didn't even name it. They were reading it in. We do this all the time. So this is not just those folks. We do this all the time. And then we sort of filter out stuff as well uh, because we just kind of elide over certain things because we think we know what we're reading. Have you ever like written something and then set it down and then go and then go back like, I don't know, a month later and then read it and say, what was I thinking? Or, you know, that kind of thing. Or you notice all of the things that you thought you had said, but you didn't. Like you'll leave out a, a word uh, and you were, and, you, and you, even when you were proofreading your own writing, you were inserting the word even though it wasn't on the page. You just sort of like... Like, there you go. That's why uh, it's really important to have other people read your stuff because <laughs> they don't know what was on your mind. You know, they're, they're like, uh, I think you left out a word here. No, I didn't. That was a perfect, perfectly composed sentence. And you go back and look and say, oh, you're right. <laughs> I left out something that I should have had in there. So it happens a lot. And then when it comes to something like this, uh, we can kind of just, like I said, he lied, just sort of skim over things and miss them. So let's go back to this text, uh, even though we addressed it last week, and take a look at some words that we might have uh, just failed to fully develop or, you know, or fully think about. Pretense. 
pretense. What's a pretense? When someone says, you're pretentious, what are they, what are they getting at? Yeah, there's a kind of pretend, pretending, it's the same root, right? Yeah, it's, uh, I thought, so a pretense is you're kind of uh, making yourself out to be something perhaps you're not, uh, or you're assuming certain liberties that you shouldn't assume you, you have a right to. Um, when you're pretentious, you behave as though you're something you're not, right? Virtue signaling. Virtue signaling, that's right, that you're actually better than you are, <laughs> right? Uh, so I think that's true. Any other thoughts on pretense? So, so pretense here is concerning Christian liberty, a pretense of Christian liberty. So a misunderstanding of Christian liberty or a mis-application sort of, of it or uh, a, a, a sort of uh, you, you believe it's given you a right to something you don't actually have a right to. And we do that a lot, you know. Uh, just in the course of our lives, I have a right to do this or that, and then you kind of look into it and say, well, I guess I don't, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, sometimes it works the other way. Sometimes you actually have a right to something and you assume you don't. Um, so one of the things I like to do when I go to like a hospital is walk around like I'm a doctor, and they all assume I am. <laughs> I, got, I got that Dr. Lee swagger. You know, I'll just walk around and, you know, not like... Uh, so this is this is a. Do you ever see that? Ever see that film? Catch me if you can. If you like, just go through life, you know, like you're in charge. Everybody assumes you are. <laughs> you know, that's pretentious, right? And sometimes it works great. So, like, you know, I'm gonna when I'm in a prison or a hospital, you know, that's where you know pastors have to go. You know, on different occasions. You know, I just kind of walk in like I'm. I have a right to it. And I actually do. But I think sometimes we kind of go through life. Uh, assuming we don't, you get what I'm getting at. So if you if you kind of just put the other folks in the position of like, you know, you kind of project authority that yeah, maybe he's he's got a right to this. But I actually do in those situations. I have a right to visit prisoners. I have a right to visit the sick. I have a right to go into the ICU. You know, I have a right to these things. This is my job. You know, and people, you know, when they know who I am, will say, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, oh, I thought you were the doctor. No, I'm, I'm a pastor. <laughs> well, I am a kind of a doctor. <laughs> doctor of souls, you know. Anyway, having a little fun with the idea. But you get my, my drift. Um, but when it comes to Christian liberty, um, you know, this is something we should think about. Now, the next uh, clause is do practice any sin. So that is an act. Okay, we, we are acting. The next thing, though, I think is worth considering. Cherish any lust. Cherish any lust. So, what, what's, you know, I think the term lust, you know, our minds immediately go to sensuality, and that's legitimate. But is there anything else that it might kind of include? Something you want. Covetousness? Mm-hmm. David? Yeah, yep, so you're, you're lusting after that house, that car, right? I was driving back from Moscow yesterday, and there's this beautiful uh, 1940s souped-up you know, Chevy truck. I mean, it was just really sweet. I was lusting. <laughs> that's, a, that's a need, not a lust. What's that? That's a need. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. That's right. That's right. It's a genuine need. That's right. That's right. But you get my... And I'm having a little fun with it, but I think, too... 
you know, anger would, could be, I think any kind of passion that's unruly, that maybe uh, is a kind of cherishing of a, of a sinful thing, like revenge or something like that. You get my, get my, my thought. Now, uh, where this has come into play in our own denomination is the debate surrounding homosexuality. So uh, there have been some who have um, implied that it's only the act, in other words, this, the clause that proceeds, that's sinful, but the cherishing of the lust is not. In other words, your disposition or you're predisposed to this particular sin, and you identify with it, and you say, I'm a you know, homosexual Christian, just celibate. And you're like, oh, what, how does that work? What do you mean by that? What does that imply? Does that imply that this uh, sort of desire is not a problem? Are you implying that when you go to heaven that the desire will go with you? Or will it be addressed? Will it be cleansed? If it will be cleansed, then there's something wrong that is being addressed. You see what I'm getting and that's what this is getting at as well, these desires that even if you don't act on them are still not good. Like, let, let's think about this this way. Let's universalize this because now it's, you know, whenever we talk in these terms with relationship to a particular group of people, we feel like we're picking on them. Let's just think about ourselves. There's a thing called original sin. We have a disposition to sin, right? A lust for sinning, right? Is that going to be cleansed in glorification? Is that going to be? Yes, of course it is. <laughs> we don't like relish it, you know. It's, yeah, I never do anything I want to do, but I really enjoy wanting to do it. You get, you get what I'm getting at, you know? That's going to be addressed. So uh, why make this particular exception? That's what a particular party within our denomination wanted us to do, make a particular exception for this, you know? You know, we could get into the whys, but it's not really important. The, the question is, 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 is this, you know, uh, apply to that? I think it does. Um, and then, you know, the, the next set of clauses. I don't want to rush on if Clayson, anybody has any thoughts or comments about that. Yeah. yeah anyway. Well, I'm kind of jumping to a word you used. It's yeah. not in the text. Uh, you mentioned passion. Yeah. I, you know, in modern day, everybody talks about finding your passion. Right. But in Scripture, is passion ever looked on as posit- as a positive attribute? I think uh, the term, the way we tend to use it in, con- you know, sort of contemporary uh, English, uh, would probably be better, um, tr- you know, sort of expressed with the term love. Find the thing you love. Right. I think, but you're right, you know, in Scripture and in antiquity, a passion was sort of like a, a thing that uh, overcomes you and you lose your, your kind of your um, perspective, you lose your reason, you're just kind of swept along by a passion. So a passion uh, in antiquity, and I'm actually going to talk about this today in the sermon, passion was understood to be something that was out of control and a problem. Um, Dionys- the, Di- the cult of Dionysius. There, this was a kind of a, a notorious uh, thing in the, early, you know, the in the classical period, 
where people would just kind of give, them over, give themselves over to their passions and go out into the woods and just get drunk and engage in all kinds of lewd behavior. And this was a religious practice because it was the god Dionysius that, that was being honored. And um, it led to all kinds of unhealthy social things, as you can imagine. And so, you know, even in pagan, you know, Greek city-states, they were having to pull this thing in. This is bad. This, you know, we shouldn't see this kind of stuff going on. Um, but anyway, that was what came to mind, you know, in those days when you talk about passion. Well, yeah, and I understand what today's meaning is. Right. But... If we are to take, I, I almost feel like if we're going to be reading the word, we should take on the uh, language. Of oh, I agree, yeah. Well, this is an interesting conversation, <laughs> uh, philosophy of translation. Let me get to that in a second, but I saw another hand. Yeah, David. But passion is really important to us Christians if we know the Latin and the yeah. suffering, so we have Passion Week of Christ. right. So in that particular uh, understanding or way of thinking, you're talking about what's happening to Christ, you know, as he's suffering. So it's dealing with kind of the root of the word, right? Yeah. So I think that, you know, it's great to footnote things and say, you know, this is what we're getting at. Um, Yeah, I I think getting back to Naomi's point about uh, how we render things from one language to another, there's always some measure of interpretation going on, even when you try to do things as literally as possible, rendering things as literally as possible. For example, syntax. If you if you put things into the syntax of say Hebrew, it just doesn't. You know, English speaker, what in the world are you talking about? You get the, everything backwards. You sound like Yoda. You know, <laughs> you know, if you, get, you know, it's, it's just the way the language works, the syntax is different. Another thing is that when it comes to philosophies of translation, sometimes a, a strict word for word can come across pretty wooden, you know, because it doesn't have the kind of the, the flow of contemporary English. So there are, are kind of, you can kind of think about it as a uh, continuum. At one end over here, you have the loosest, and that would be a, like a paraphrase. Like, uh, remember the Living Bible? You know, all the hippies were using it back in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, and it had flower children on the cover. It was super cool, you know, people in, you know, tie-dye shirts and bell-bottoms and <laughs> that kind of stuff. So you had that all the way here. And then all the way over here, you have the New American Standard Bible, which is about, you know, trying to get it as, you know, you know word for word as possible. And then wherever there's like an English word inserted just so to make it flow, you'll be in a, you know, I think, you know, a different italic or it'll be italic or something like that. I remember one time I was, I was listening to somebody uh, and they were talking about the King James. And they would say, oh, those italicized words are the ones that are really important. I said, actually, no, those are the words that they inserted to make it make sense and not actually in the text. <laughs> anyway, they were completely getting it backwards. But, the, uh, but King James is pretty literal. You know, it's still very much over on that end. Uh, then you got uh, what's known as dynamic equivalency which would be like the New International Version of the Bible. And dynamic equivalency is the, is the attempt to kind of go meaning for meaning as opposed to word for word. The problem is with that is you get really into interpretation. So I'm actually related to a couple of the primary translators of the NIV, and I would, I would have long conversations with them deep, you know, well into the night about it, and um, kind of got turned off <laughs> when I realized what was going on. Here, let me give an example. 
So I'll get to you, Molly. I'll get to you. <laughs> but let me give you an example of how this can work. Dynamic equivalency was actually the product of, of a linguist that worked for Wycliffe named Eugene Nida. So Eugene Nida, you know, with Wycliffe, you know, you got Wycliffe Bible translators, and they're translating scripture into all kinds of languages, you know, uh, stuff in like Papua New Guinea, for example. Um, so some of those languages, you know, there are just not, there just aren't, uh, you know, the words that you, you know, would would need. <laughs> To in order in order to, to get a, a thought across or or to translate it well, um, now when you get to like Wycliffe and Tyndale and those guys, when they would have that problem with English, they would just import the word, which is fascinating. They would just say, "We're going to just anglicize this Greek word, or we're going to anglicize this Latin word because we don't have it in English," and then it's introduced into English. Beautiful. That's not what, what uh, Eugene did. You know, Eugene Knight would strictly stick to the, to the received language or the receiving language. So when, uh, you know, this is the fun one. I love to use this illustration to get the point across. So when, so, so when translators were translating, say, you know, references to sheep in, you know, the Bible, you know, in this uh, language in Papua New Guinea, what did they use? Uh, because they don't have sheep. Pigs. They loved their pigs. <laughs> they had very deep affection for their pigs. There's a problem, though, right? A pig is an unclean animal. So now you're like, how do we deal with that? How do we say, on the one hand, you're supposed to cherish your pig, and on the other hand, they're filthy? You know, <laughs> you know they're unclean. So you end up with these, with these problems when you just stick to the received language. The, re- the language is receiving the. Yeah, I think that the better approach is what you know Wycliffe and Tyndale did. You in- in- introduced a new word into the language. But anyway, some thoughts. Yeah, Molly. What was that Dionysus? Dionysus, the cult of Dionysus. Mm-hmm. What what language would they speak? Well, this was Greek, so ancient Greece. Um, you know, Dionysus was the god of wine, the god of party, that kind of thing. <laughs> so Dionysius, you know, when you say that's a Dionysian thing, you're talking about the passions, you know, the lusts, these kinds of things. He'd hang out with centaurs and all kinds of creatures in the forest, and they'd all do illicit things out in the woods. <laughs> that was basically the cult of Dionysius. Thank you, sir, because yeah. I, I've heard that name. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, this, now, this is kind of a fun thing to think about. I've thought about this a lot. When you think about fawns, like, you know, the, the creatures with the goat legs and stuff like that, Mr. Tumnus, Mr. Tumnus in, you know, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's a remarkable appropriation of a Dionysian mythological figure into a Christian story. How does Lewis... Christianize Mr. Tumnus. Have you ever thought about it? Because anybody who's... Now, certainly Lewis was aware of all the associations. How did Lewis civilize Mr. Tumnus? Remember? What's that? He's a teetotaler. Yeah, well, he's a teetotaler. Yep. He's kind of polite, right? He's got a... He's, yeah, he's got a very English look. He's got an umbrella and a package. <laughs> he's standing under a, a lamp. Now, there's a, there's a moment where Lucy is in his lair, and she's, remember, she looks at all the books as man of myth and all this kind of stuff, and Mr. Tumnus uh, begins to behave like a true fawn. 
Remember, he gets out the pipes and starts to play and enchants her and because he's going to take her to the White Witch as a kind of trophy. And then he repents. That's another thing that happens. He repents. I can't do it. It's not right. So what we have is a Christian fawn. <laughs> That's what Lewis did with it. It's kind of fun to think about because if you know the story of what fawns are about, you're like, whoa, what's going on with this? It's kind of... You know, most folks who don't know that background is like think Mr. Thomas is just kind of cute. <laughs> but actually, it's pretty scary when you think about it. Anyway, um, now, I, I mentioned last week the, the point that for human beings, freedom is not an end, but a means to an end. We think of it as, a, as just an end. And the fact that it's not a, an end is brought out in the last section of this article. So he says, destroy the end of Christian liberty. In other words, Christian liberty has an end, has a purpose. It's meant to, to serve and pursue. What is that? Okay, we've been delivered out of the hands of our enemies. Who are our enemies? Thoughts? Yeah, Christopher. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Yeah, that's the great triad. That's the unholy trinity, right? So the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've been delivered from the oppression, uh, our slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil, so that we might serve, not ourselves, but the Lord. Serve the Lord without fear. Now, why would we be without fear if we've been delivered? Because evil is everywhere. Well, right, we, we, we don't have to be afraid of it. That's a very good point. Because of the very next phrase, before him. Yeah, afraid of the Lord in the, in the, in the wrong sense. <laughs> We're afraid of his, his wrath, his um, just, uh, you know, his, his justice, because we know that we're unjust. Because we've been delivered from the world, the flesh, and the devil, we, we can serve the Lord without fear. And then in holiness and righteousness. So our, our, our freedom is intended to further the practice of holiness and righteousness. That's what it's for. It's not an end in itself. It's not, I used the illustration last week of the guy who can't decide what, what, what you know, show to watch on television, so he just keeps flipping through all the channels and never settles on anything because he's afraid of losing his freedom. Doesn't want to make a commitment. Doesn't want to make a commitment to a television show. <laughs> We're going to say because I might miss out on the other show. And then you have picture in picture. If you, if you, you know, I want to watch two shows. Actually, I want to watch ten shows. I want to watch in. You know, I, so I go to Buffalo Wild Wings so I can watch every sporting event. And you're always missing the. the you know, you're cheering. What did I miss? What did I miss? <laughs> you're always kind of looking around, trying to. You know, you miss everything because you don't want to settle on anything. Anyway. Any thoughts on any of that? A choice is very, very hard to make sometimes. Well, that's true, because sometimes um, knowing what is best is hard to discern. Um, now, when it comes to you know, entertainment and stuff like that, uh, we can evaluate uh, those things. But we're talking about you know, something that's important, but not the highest level of importance when we're thinking about entertainment. Yeah. Is this related to uh, Luther's comment about going and sin boldly? Well, that's an interesting 
thing to consider. Um, what's your take on Luther and what he was trying to say? Because I've often wondered. I'm not sure what he's up to. Well, I, 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 it seems to be a parallel to what, uh, yeah. what this... Uh, Do you think they're rebuking him? No, I think he's, what he's saying is that uh, in true Christian liberty, we have the freedom to serve God without fear of, uh, and, and we know that even our very best efforts okay. are going yeah. to be tainted with sin, yeah. yeah, but yet we can serve God boldly right. without fear because we're not cherishing right. lusts or we're not, you know, we got this, we got this whole secret over here we don't want to give up. Well, there's that, and there's also the sense that everything in the world is in some way tied into things that we can't necessarily improve of. Um, so I think what you're, what you're getting about your own motives is right. You know, you're, it's not like you're ever, you know, uh, completely doing things for the right reason only. You know, there's often some other thing mixed in. But there's also in the world that we live in that problem too. So let me just give you an example. I was driving home yesterday. I got a call from a friend, and he was wondering about fractional reserve banking, of all things, and wanted my opinion. <laughs> you know, like, so we spent about an hour on the, as I'm driving through the gorge talking about fractional reserve banking. And he has some uh, qualms about uh, the legitimacy of it. Uh, because essentially what you're doing is you're creating debt, and what you create is a kind of... Um, hamster wheel that people have to kind of live on to kind of keep up with the payments all the time. And it's a, it's a way of kind of like, you know, promoting economic growth by sort of like pulling people along, you know, using their desires uh, to reach out for things they don't have the funds for. And, and, but you, you get the point. So I'm familiar, familiar with how fractional reserve banking works. I, I know some of you are, but it's, it's weird. So what the Federal Reserve does is it creates money out of thin air. And how does it do that? Well, it decides that it's going to issue a certain amount of debt. And who are the customers? The customers are the banks. So they, and this is why the interest rate thing that the Federal Reserve sets is so important because it has a kind of um, trickle-down effect in the whole economy. So uh, like a bank will say, okay, uh, we'd like to have uh, some money to lend to other people. And the, the uh, Federal Reserve says, fine, what are your deposits? And so you have to have a certain amount of like hard money in the bank, you know, on deposit in order to use, you know, as collateral in effect. Uh, it's not literally collateral, but it, but it basically it says you're solvent. And if there was a run on your deposit, you'd have the you know enough because they're kind of guessing what a run would be like and, and that kind of thing. So anyway, so so they your local bank is taking a loan. Did you realize that from the Federal Reserve, and then reissuing the loan at a higher rate of interest. That's the, that's the spread. That's where they make their money. Uh, they need your deposits, and they give you some interest on that. At least they used to. <laughs> where are we at now in bank deposits? Have we gotten it above two yet or anything? We're not even close. Not the regular banks. Yeah. Yeah. Or you have to tie it up in a CD or something. Yeah. I remember, I remember when I was a kid, you get four and five, and it's like just on your regular savings account. Anyway, that's, those days are long gone. But um, so what you, what you end up with is <clears throat> this bank takes a loan from this bank, and then you take a, you know, a loan from the bank, and, that, and you got this kind of thing. <clears throat> so his, his, his concerns had to do with, you know, uh, is this honest money? And so we talked about it for a while. And I, I'm not trying to make any big point about fractional reserve banking, but 
his concerns uh, had to do with what do I do if I don't, you know, if I'm not comfortable with this? Do I like just opt out of the economy, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a sense in which you're kind of like caught up in a lot of stuff that you're not necessarily fully on board with. You see what I'm getting at? You can think about lots of things. You think about public education. You know, let's say you're a single mom and you've got some kids and you've got to work and you just know other options. You've got to send your kid to the school, even though you're kind of uncomfortable with a lot of things they're teaching. What are you going to do apart from that, unless there's somebody who comes along and says, I'll help you or something like that? You know, you just kind of have to participate in something you're not necessarily even on board with fully. A lot of, a lot of things like that in the world. Um, and then how do you sort that all out? So I'm not trying to make excuses for anything, but this is where we live in. There's a, it's kind of kind of like that. Any thoughts about any of that? Well, me too, Molly. And we can work at that. All right. So well, I, I pray every single day that that's the way America becomes. Well, you know, I'm, I'm with you. Let's do that. So let's take a look here at the next uh, article, Article 4. Um, and because the powers which God hath ordained and the liberty which Christ hath purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, they who upon pretense of Christian liberty shall oppose any lawful power or lawful exercise of it whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. Let's stop here, because what we can do is kind of reflect on that, because the rest of the, rest of the article goes into, uh, you know, in the various clauses, all of the ways that you could do that. But I was just, you know, I've been thinking a lot about currency lately, thinking a lot about, uh, because I've got to speak on it t- uh, on Tuesday, <laughs> And, and, and I came across something in my, my, my work that um, was uh, striking, and I'd like to mention it now because and, and, I think it, it relates directly to what we're talking about here. Are you familiar with the uh, provisions of the Bank Holiday Act of 1933? No. <laughs> of course not, because they don't talk about it in school. <laughs> it's a very uh, interesting uh, thing that... Uh, was one of the very first things that FDR instituted when he came into office. Uh, first, uh, because you know the bank, banks were in crisis, it just it was a, on the surface a holiday. Okay, we're just not going to conduct any business uh, or have any banks conduct business so that we can get a sense of what's going on. Okay, but there were other things that were going on that they don't, you don't know or didn't talk about or didn't hear anyway. I should, let me put it that way. It's not, they're not commonly thought about. One, banks are pro- were prohibited from buying or selling silver or gold. That was part of the provision. Uh, two, banks prohibited from uh, providing foreign exchange. So in other words, if you wanted to maybe uh, get some uh, pounds, you know, English, Currency, you were no, no longer allowed to do that. This is beginning to sound an awful lot like the Soviet Union, because that's exactly what it was like. Uh, three, gold clauses were negated in all contracts. So up until this point, any person in America could take their 
Federal Reserve notes, their physical you know, dollars, their paper money, and exchanged it for gold. And there was an exchange rate of like $23 per ounce of gold, approximately. Weren't those the days? <laughs> but you would get $23 uh, uh, of, you know, per ounce of gold. That was what it was worth. That was the standard. In other words, the standard was fixed. And then everything else was sort of working off of that standard. Um, and then the fourth provision is Americans were required to sell all of their gold to the U.S. Treasury. That was the confiscation. Did you know that our government confiscated all the gold in the country in 1933? You think they got it all? Well, I think some people, yeah, I think some people said, no, I'm not bringing it. <laughs> That's the thing about those sorts of things, including gun confiscations and stuff like that. There are going to be people who don't cooperate. But it was a federal crime not to, to sell your gold. And guess what? Did you, get, did you get $23 for it? You got 20 And you know what they did, like, the next day? After they, I'm, not, I'm just saying this as an illustration. I'm not saying literally the next day. It's a, a figure of speech. But you know what they did after that? They devalued the currency by 30-plus percent. So they got it both ways. They got the gold at a discount from you, and then the stuff that they gave you in place of the gold, they cut its value. Emergency. There's always an emergency with Molly. <laughs> Had to do with the Depression. But anyway, that's something that ought to be like there ought to be like monuments around the country commemorating or noting this, this event, but there aren't. I imagine that most of you, this is the first you've heard of it. I'd, heard, I'd known of it, but I didn't know all of the things that had gone on in it. Now, eventually, you know, they started selling gold back to the general public, but uh, bullion dealers have to report every sale to the federal government. So they know what you got. Do you think they might call it back sometime if they, need, they feel like they need to? That's the idea. So, it's, so you've gone from a situation where uh, there is a... Well, let me, let me... So in case you were wondering, there were Christian leaders who objected. <laughs> and one of them was J. Gresham Machen. He actually uh, uh, wrote something. This is the guy uh, who wrote uh, Christianity and Liberalism was the founder of the, you know, the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So this is what he had to say about the uh, Bank Holiday Act. So uh, it starts off, I think the really significant thing that we find is that America has turned away from God. So he draws a direct connection between this act and turning away from God. In the political and social discussions of the day, God's law has ceased to be regarded as a factor to be, that deserved, deserves to be reckoned with at all. That is true in regard to the higher ranges of human life. It is also true in regard to that mammon which, in which our Lord said, a man must be faithful if he is to be faithful in higher things. We hear much about mammon today. We hear much about the currency we hear much about the question whether what is euphemistically called a, quote, managed currency, end of quote, is or is not economically more advantageous than the gold standard. But the sad thing is that 
In all this discussion, we hear little about simple honesty, which is the law of God. I can remember when I had a certain patriotic pride in the good faith of the United States government. In those bygone days when the phrase, quote, sound as a dollar, end of quote, had not yet become a jest. The United States government, in its business dealings, seems to me to be the very embodiment, or seemed to me to be the very embodiment of integrity. That's past tense. I regarded it uh, as almost inconceivable that it would repudiate its corporate obligations. Yet today, it has done just that. Of course, there are times when a government or an individual must fail to meet obligations. That is when the government or the individual is bankrupt. When the government or the individual acknowledges the justice of the obligations but is under the necessity of pleading that they cannot be met, I am not saying, therefore, that when a country goes off the gold standard it is necessarily acting dishonestly, but it is not such an honest bankruptcy which we have in the United States at the present time. On the contrary, what we have is the very ruthless application of the devil's principle that might makes right. Look at the United States gold certificate, if you can find one somewhere in a museum today without being put in jail for looking at it. (laughs) He's pretty bitter. (laughs) Uh, Upon it, the United States government promises to pay very specifically, not in some other currency, but in gold. It is a solemn obligation of the United States. It is a solemn contract, not of any individual, but of the United States government, a contract to the fulfillment of which the honor of the American people is pledged, a contract with the holder of the note. Today, not only is that contract not fulfilled, but the holder of the contract is threatened with imprisonment unless he hands over uh, to the defaulting party the contract itself. I tell you, my friends, There are many things that are uncertain about the future, but of one thing we can be sure, a nation that tramples uh, thus upon the law of God, that tramples upon the basic principles of integrity, is headed for destruction unless it repents in time. 1933. Pretty strong stuff from an ordained minister. (laughs) But um, what do you think about this? So here we have this... um, clarion statement about submitting to the lawful authority of the government and then you have uh, something that uh, occurs in which the government is acting unlawfully. How do you handle that? So in other words, what I'm getting at is it's not so simple as just saying Romans 13. Salute, 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 salute. Now we have to Think about this. Is it possible for a government to act unlawfully? And if so, how do you, how do you how do you discern that? In other words, just because it maybe is it you know seems to be something that puts you at a disadvantage, does that make it unlawful? You know, so you have to. It's not just you know what you like or you know what favors your political side, but when when does the line get crossed and how do you know? Yeah, Molly. Was FDR a Democrat? Yep. Well, that's <laughs> There you go. <laughs> yeah, I clarified that for you. Anyway, any, any other thoughts? We, we never had a Republican do anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, we did, Richard Nixon. <laughs> 
But anyway, uh, so any other thoughts? I guess what I'm getting at is, 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 is that this statement, so far as it is what it is, is true. But it doesn't prevent us from or preclude the hard work of thinking and you know, discerning and arguing. In fact, a, d- a democracy works through deliberation, right? So you should have a right to say, you know, I think, Mr. President, that was not right. You know, I think that our, our, our you know, Congress passed a law that's not lawful. You know, that ought to, go, ought to go to the Supreme Court and be under review. Yeah. It's funny, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, yeah. it's almost like the same conversation oh, yeah. that they brought to Jesus. You know, who, yeah. who should we, you know, you know the coin? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. You know, Renders Caesar right. what is Caesar's, and, and they hated the Romans. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, of course, they were trying to trap him. And that kind of enigmatic response just frustrated them. So, <laughs> but that, yeah, that's a whole other interesting conversation. But yeah, the relationship between Caesar and uh, you know the true Lord is an ongoing one that we have. You know, it's really the thing that characterizes Western civilization and sets it apart um, is that conversation or that debate. Yeah, Chihou. These words were written before the American Revolution. Right. Yes. So the people who held to the standard, what were they, they what were they saying about the American Revolution? They changed the confession. <laughs> they actually did. <laughs> they they put inserted some things. And so that was actually a you know an ongoing matter of contention within the reform world. Meacham's like uh, speech, right, or whatever that was. Yeah. Like, I can imagine somebody, a royalist saying the same thing about the American Yeah, yeah. So uh, there were different resources that came into play. I mentioned one of them last week, uh, Vindiciae Contra Terranos, which is, of course, the Latin term for, I think, uh, a vindication of liberty uh, against tyrants. And, um, And what that was is a... It was followed, uh, what was it, the witch massacre? I'm trying to remember which one. Anyway, there was St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where many Huguenots were killed across France. And um, so there was a pseudonymous or or a pen name or nom de plume, I think it was uh, Junius Brutus. But it was clearly a highly educated um, aristocrat theologian that wrote it, and it's really a marvelous um, examination of covenant, uh, sort of how governments work and, and the understanding of the, that it's a covenantal arrangement and that parties are obliged to fulfill their part of the covenant. Otherwise, uh, you know, the other party can take action against the offending party. But it's a it's a great book. It's very dense. I gave it to my, with, when COVID began, I read it, and uh, I gave it to my session at my last church, and they, they couldn't get through it. <laughs> uh, didn't, I'm not sure they tried very hard. But anyway, they, they, it was a, it's, a, it's a challenging read. So if you pick it up, be, be prepared for that. Yep, Christopher. To that, to that question, uh, there was an active discussion about lawful power and lawful exercise. Yeah. They didn't try to skip the 
debate over whether the actions of the English government, the English Parliament, were lawful or a lawful exercise of the powers that they had, and they said right. that they were not. So right. it seems to me that we can either go in the direction of saying that it really is a free-for-all, um, we pick individually what we want to obey, or we do submit to lawful power, lawfully exercised, but then we do not get to skip the discussion of what a lawful yeah. exercise of lawful power actually is, right. and the confession is not binding us, and the word of God, according to their interpretation, does not bind us to obey unlawful power right. or power exercised unlawfully. Yeah, and I think that's what makes Presbyterians so feisty, you know, because we're willing to push back on things like that, not just say, just because you say so, we, we're going to go along. We, we, we believe that there's the law of God, and we have a right to call you to account on that matter. So like when you think about the American Revolution, it was known as the Presbyterian Revolution by many folks in the UK, or what you know was England at that time. Did you know that? America owes its independence to Calvinists with guns. Jonathan, I, I've always wanted to make a bumper sticker. <laughs> One of the things in Vindicii that uh, I found very, uh, very, very compelling, very balancing against a uh, a, a, a the unchristian American hyper individualist, right. me and my AR-15 and my stack of, of gold against. Against the, the Fed boys or whatever, um, is 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 he's very clear that a Christian still has an obligation to submit to if if if, if, if in general your your civil magistrates are are being unlawful in a broken covenant, you as an individual Christian still have a responsibility to find a civil magistrate that is adhering to the covenant and submit to him. Um, and, and, and how that, uh, that balances yeah, the lesser, passion. The lesser magistrate, the doctor lesser magistrate. And that was something that, that came up. Um, and there was division of, of opinion on that, um, that uh, if you can't find one, does that mean you're stuck? And there were some who maintained that it, you weren't. You could still rebel lawfully. Um, but you're right, that was kind of like the, the place where you should go is the lesser magistrate, which is one reason why, you know, in the United States, is it the sheriff or the marshal? That's the regional, isn't it the marshal? Sheriff, who is like, yeah, it was an election for sheriff that we had here. So uh, where if the local, you know, sheriff does not believe something is constitutional, he doesn't have to enforce it. His, his, his first loyalty is to the Constitution, not to the governor. Um, before your uh, 1776 debacle, there was the British were were they were. You mean the uh, war independence? Yeah. <laughs> I know it was something, but it is a different version of that. I'm sure. Um, is they had restricted coin to such an extent, the British, that you couldn't trade. Yeah. And so they were. It was illegal to make your own coin. Yeah. So they were. Americans were, colonies were doing that, and they were doing other things. Now you get into the why the Bitcoin thing is so interesting. And the custom ships were trying to get them. What started the war wasn't the Tea Party. It was the burning of the custom ship. Yeah, but, but see, this is where we always kind of go. Even in the book of Revelation, if you think about the mark of the beast, everybody gets caught up in the mark, the 666. But what was it intended to, 
prohibit people who were not approved from participating in the economy. They could not buy or sell. That's what's happened in the last three years. But that's, that's my point. So, so we see that, this, that these pressure points, these thumb screws are always, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> you know, and that's one of the things that frustrates me about some treatments of the book of Revelation is sometimes people, I'm not arguing for preterism or anything, I'm just saying we're, you, you get so caught up in you know, the number You've kind of lost the, the, the way that this uh, helps you understand how Christians were being squeezed, you know, when they couldn't buy and sell in the market. Well, we were forced, they offered him a ship as he's six months from his captains, and if he submitted to them and got vaccinated, they were on the phone with him, telling him that he can have what he wants if he will submit to the vaccine, and we couldn't do it. Yeah. We just couldn't do it. Yeah, and of course there's an economic dimension to that. Yeah, but this, but this, this is where. So, like, I'm, I'm reading. Um, uh, I think it's uh, the Master and Margarita by uh, Mikhail uh, Bulgakov. I think it's the name. It's like a, a Russian um, kind of uh, sort of uh, dissident novel. It was written, of course, during Stalin's time, and. Um, there is in the novel all of this stuff that we're just talking about now, the confiscation of gold and jewels, um, foreign currency. If you were in the possession of foreign currency, you could, you could be thrown into prison. Uh, so it's this attempt to control economic livelihood and trade and so forth that is um, like in the, in the tyrant's playbook, you know, chapter one. You know, we'll start here. <laughs> You know, and if, if, we, if, if people still won't cooperate, we'll, we'll get tough at that point. Um, you know, we'll, we'll collect their gold and their jewels and stuff like that. So, I think I hear some gold and jewels. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, the reason I, I wanted to get into that is because I don't think that the way we read it. Remember what I noted about what we sometimes read in and fail to think about? We're reading in some things sometimes when we're reading something like this. This doesn't mean necessarily that you just go along with everything that the ruling authority says you should do. If the ruling authority tells you to turn in the Jews, do you do it? Is that you know, they come to the door and you've got some Jews in the back room and you say, no Jews here. Is that like, you know, something that's a huge problem, you know? You know so um, anyway, things to think about, particularly at, at, at uh, times uh, where we see, you know, uh, civil unrest and a crisis of some kind. So um, now, did... Machen um, uh, disobey this next sentence. In other words, he, he published his convictions about the unlawfulness of the confiscation of gold in the United States in 1933, and we're told, and for publishing of such opinions <laughs> or of maintaining of such practices as are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship, or conversation, or to the power of godliness, or such uh, erroneous opinions or practices 
as either in their own nature or in the manner of publishing or maintaining them are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ has established in the church, they may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the censures of the church. That's a long sentence, but the, the, the thing to note is that first statement or the first part of the sentence. Publishing such opinions, in other words, it's not just necessarily a um, physical uh, book or pamphlet we're talking about here. It's, just, it's the notion of sort of propagating or sort of spreading. You know, so it could be like a podcast or a radio show or anything. It's just basically that's what they're getting at here. Um, such practices and, uh, and opinions, so opinions and practices. And then notice the, the clauses that follow as are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity. So those are the qualifying statements. But isn't that what we're talking about is under, under discussion or it can be at the point of contention? Is um, the act of the governing authority something that is contrary to the light of nature or to uh, the, the known principles of Christianity? Was Luther contrary to man or God when he put that uh, 95 thesis on the door of the church? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's where, you know, things come to a head. Um, I think uh, Luther's always kind of a challenge because he also was the one who endorsed the, the, um, the suppression of the present revolts, uh, and those were pretty um, significant uh, anyway, something to think about. But anyways, when we, when we think about Luther, it's always kind of a, it's a big discussion. <laughs> yeah. Machen's fine. He, says he, he um, aligns himself, uses as his explanation the law of God and the violation of the law of God. The civil magistrate has to accommodate, has to obey the law of God no differently than we do. He's made himself his own law, and so he's just calling it out. And that, um, you know, maybe I'd even go further and say, and in in the book of First Samuel, when they reject God as king, he basically tells them, "I'm going to give you a king, and he's going to be tyranny is going to begin." Tyranny is going to begin on how you're going to basically you're going to what he says is you're going to start. Tithing yeah. to that king, and then you're going to come under conscription and all sorts of issues. Ultimately, we know what that leads to. Right. The tech, next time we see this in spades is in Nehemiah, where they're under the Medo-Persian kings, and now they're paying tribute to those kings, and they're in desperate states, right at that point. I'm sure the Persians had all the right arguments to justify why they exactly. did you know, but, but the highway we're putting in. The answer <laughs> that, that they're given yeah. is to make God king, right. to keep his laws, and specifically to tie to him, to have the feast, to not enslave and sell their, their, the others. And when we get to the New Testament, what Christians are in trouble about is because they're making Christ king right. and his law king, and ultimately the Roman Empire is changed because of it. Yeah. So the, the state, the position of the civil magistrate, is always derivative of man's view 
of God as king. And when God is not made king in the hearts of man, and he doesn't behave that way, by the way he obeys his law, he ends up with a civil magistrate that's going to be a tyrant. And that's and, and the reform of that tyrant is when man returns to God and repents and worships and obeys him as king. The civil magistrate will take care of itself because God will make make it so. Yeah, that's how Mijan ends, right? Yeah. Talks about repent. Once we repent. Yeah, so you've talked about the, the law having uh, both you know, a, a positive and, ne- and negative uh, imperative. Right. Um, so is, is, is there that aspect with this Christian liberty where we're talking about, you know, there's, there are things you can uh, and, and can't do, and, you know, and this is in the negative, right? You, you sh- this last paragraph, you should, um, is, is there a, specifically when talking about with the, with the civil magistrate, um, is there, is there a, an interpretation of Romans 13 that, that, that has that, uh, that positive side um, where, where you have a, a, a right, a duty to yeah. throw off such government as our, as our as the yeah. yeah, I think that there's, there's something tacit there you know, and bringing it to the surface is the challenge and doing it in a way that acknowledges the, legit, the legitimacy of the office. So sometimes, you know, I, I know we're all tempted to, when we have somebody in political office that we don't respect or uh, we didn't vote for, say, that's not my president, you know. Well, actually, technically, he, he is. <laughs> you know, whether we like it or not, you know, he, he, he actually is. Um, so there's a, there's a need for us to respect the office, even though we might have questions about the office holder and doubts about the integrity of the office holder and what the office is being used for. So this, so this is a really challenging matter. I mean, we all have to kind of uh, go through life without the simple sort of um, set of nostrums that we might wish we could rely on. We have to actually exercise judgment in situations where we wish we didn't have to, if you get my drift. He's at 39%. Well, yeah, that's actually better than most of European politicians. <laughs> no, I know, I know. It's just. The intelligence. Well, again, just going back to scripture, um, you know, it's a dilemma that the apostles found themselves in when they were commanded not to preach. Right. And they're there, you know, now you the intersection of the magistrate yeah. and God, and they, they pretty much told you who they're going to be obeying. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, and, you know, when we think about how our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world uh, kind of deal with this, I was talking uh, to, to Lisa the other day about the situation uh, in uh, Eastern Europe and Ukraine and Russia before the you know, as things changed and how different denominations were kind of known for sort of different sort of ways of dealing with the government. And there were some who were more uh, inclined to go along with things, and there were some that were more defiant. And the ones who were more defiant um, felt like, and we'd probably agree, we have good reason to, <laughs> to be that way, right? And then they looked at the ones who were sort of less uh, defiant as being, you know, compromised uh, because of that. 
Um, I think in our own country, we're, we're kind of very slowly, it's not nearly as dramatic, of course, but there's almost a kind of, um, like when you think about in China now, you've got uh, those churches that are recognized by the government. They're known as three self-churches, or at least they were for the longest time. Actually, that's a fa fascinating appropriation of Roland Allen's term for indigenous churches. Uh, Roland Allen was a missions theorist from the early part of the 20th century, late 19th century. He was talking about what is the objective with regard to planting new churches in new parts of the world. He said, we want them to be three self, you know, self-governing, self-propagating, self-funding, the three selves. I think it was Mao who, when he heard about that, appropriated that, and basically said, we want Chinese churches that are you know, that way, which means that they were cut off from the West. Right? So his take on that was that now they're completely subject to me. And then you have the house churches, which are not recognized. And uh, in that setting, many of the house church leaders don't trust the leaders of the officially recognized churches. And I think we're kind of almost kind of trending that way in our own country. There are churches, like we got, a, we got an email this week. I don't know if anybody saw it. It was sent to me. I, I was just so busy I didn't get a chance to respond to it. But the first question that was asked in the email is, did you close for COVID? It was like the litmus test this person was using to decide what kind of church we are. Fascinating. Anyway, uh, the, I think the thing to take away from this is that, yes, we submit to the civil authorities, so long as the civil authorities don't defy the law of God. And that's where the debate is. What constitutes you know, a violation of God's law? When is the civil magistrate telling us to do things we shouldn't do, preventing us from th doing things we should do? That's the debate. It's not, it's not as simple as maybe um, we wish it were. Any final thoughts before we call it uh, a class? Well, I, um, oh, yeah, Gio. Sorry. Um, I don't know if you mentioned the First Amendment, but it was interesting just thinking about it just now. Yeah. It is lawful for us to oppose the government. Well, that's it. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that occurred to me uh, when, uh, you know, COVID was unfolding when there would be this <clears throat> almost, there would be this pressure to not talk about it by some, on, on the part of some people. And you're like, well, don't we live in a country where this is the way it works? <laughs> you know, debate, deliberation, citizens disagreeing with each other and trying to work things out, that's the way it's supposed to work. Uh, if you're saying to the other side, you can't talk about your ideas anymore, you know. Anyway, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, like I noted earlier, a beautiful day. We do pray for wisdom and, a, and, and hearts that are uh, zealous not only uh, for uh, things that we uh, are concerned about in terms of the violations of conscience, but also zealous for the legitimate authority of the civil and ecclesial uh, governments that we are subjected to. Help us, Lord, as we endeavor to both submit but also uh, keep you and our submission to you uh, foremost. In Christ's name, amen.